If you dig the twisted, admire the outlandish, and are enamored by the unusual, you're in the right place. True crime, the supernatural, the unexplained, now you're speaking our language. If you agree, join us as we dive into the darker side. You know, because it's more fun over here. Welcome to Total Conundrum. Warning, some listeners may find the following content disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> hey, Tracy. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? Good. How are you, Tracy? I'm good. So another uh, adventurous recording day. Oh, yeah. yeah. What are we going to be talking about today? Um, today, we are going to be telling the story Actually, I should say you are going to be telling the story of the Pike County Massacre. That's right. I am. But before we get into that, we decided to try this new fad or new app or I don't know what you want to call it. It's called Randonautica. And it's supposed to take you to random places you set your intention in your mind as the thing is loading and it's supposed to take you to like uh, geo spots or random uh, longitude and latitude locations that are supposed to help you find GPS coordinates. There you go. That's what I was looking for. But they're supposed to uh, help you find your intentions. So we decided to go out and do this the other night and we kept setting our intention to spooky and ghosts and and it really um, worked too because um if one of our real intentions was to find boredom we found it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it kept bringing us to places that had houses or right next to houses no place we could get out and walk we did it at night um jeremy downloaded a bunch of uh apps on his tablet so we decided to actually order a voice recorder so we can maybe get some true evps but then we decided our jeremy talked about going to the graveyard and i kind of uh backed <laughs> out <laughs> scared well it's just you know like i said it's it's one thing to go to a graveyard during the day but where we live we're out in the country so not only are you dealing with potential of having uh, ghosts everywhere, you're dealing with the potential of uh, a lot of wildlife, including bears. <laughs> the bears? The bears. Oh, the bears. <laughs> but we're going to try it again. We're going to try to do EVP, and then maybe eventually we'll start slowly uh, adding to our uh, collection of ghost hunting stuff, and I'll try to get over my fear. I love all things creepy, I just don't like being scared. <laughs> Am I weird? Is there anybody else there else out there like me? Yeah, with all your Halloween animatronics and uh, spooky Yeah, we do uh, creatures and we do a decked out yard every year full of uh Halloween stuff, decorations, animatronics. Jeremy created a haunted maze last year that we opened up to people in our town to come out and go through because it turned out really cool so now we're looking at uh, getting some insurance because we didn't realize that uh should probably be insured for something like that so basically the moral of the story is she loves to scare 
But she hates to be scared. Right. <laughs> right. Is there anything wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> That's not very fair. But. So when Jeremy and I first met, um, shortly after we decided to go on a, a thing um, with his family members, we went to like a haunt, a Halloween haunt out in one a town, I think, was it Shakopee or something like that? Uh, was uh, right outside of uh, Chaska, right right where the Renaissance Fair is held. Oh, that's right. So I'm like, okay, yeah, that'll be fun. It's got haunted houses and creepy people walking around. Oh, she and- was definitely scared that night, that's for sure. But it wasn't the haunted house. The, oh, your uncle? <laughs> <laughs> you saw the full moon that night. I did. I saw the full moon oh. of Scotty B. <laughs> Well, then we went through this one, the first haunted house, and it was all like basically animatronics. And after the first little section, I got so scared. I ran through, didn't even like sit and watch or look at anything. She left me behind, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in my defense, you said that if a ghost pops out the graveyard, you were going to be gone, too. (laughs) So you already said you were leaving me in the dust. So I guess it's revenge. (laughs) That's me running really fast. (laughs) (laughs) Really fast. Well, anyway, should we get to the story? Let's do it. All right. All right. So... Again, this is the uh, Pike County Massacres. So the story starts out in the peaceful countryside of the Pike County. An unimaginable tragedy unfolded, forever changing the lives of an entire community. It was a day that started like any other. With the morning sun casting its golden rays upon the rolling hills and picturesque landscapes. But within the walls of several homes, darkness loomed ready to shatter the peacefulness of the little town. As evening fell the previous night, an evil presence silently crept through the peaceful town, leaving a trail of unspeakable horror in its wake. The Pike County massacres, a chilling account that would grip the nation, were about to unfold. The tight-knit community would be torn apart, and the echoes of the brutal events would resonate through the years to come. And now I'm just going to play a 911 call from that evening or that morning. Okay, what what's your name? Give me just a second. 4077, you need to go back. 
you think they're both dead? I think they're both dead. It looks like someone has beat the fuck out of them. Okay. Is there anybody else in the house? Not that I know of. Okay. The door was locked when we got here, but I know where the key was at. And I went in and hit her laying on the floor. Bobby, I need you to get out of the house and wait. I'm done. Okay. I'm standing outside right now. Okay. Just stay out of the house. Don't let anybody go in there, okay? Yeah. All right. We got deputies on the way, okay? Uh, thank you. You're welcome. with a gunshot wound. Okay. Sir, is it still alive? No. No. Okay. And you're at 799 West Fork? It's close to 799. I don't know what his address is. He don't, he don't have a box. He don't have a box. Okay. I'll be standing out by the red wagon. What's your name, sir? Donald Stone. Donald Stone? Donald Stone. Stone? I, yeah, I'm his cousin. What's his name? Kenneth Roden. Kenneth Roden? Yeah. Okay, sir, are you out of the house? I'm out, I'm out of the house right now. I just went in, uh, hollering at him, and checked his right now, and I looked up at him, he had a gunshot wound. Okay, sir, we're going to get that to be to you, okay? All right. Bye. So that is the both 911 calls from that morning. So at 7.53 on Friday, April 22nd, 2016, the Pike County Sheriff's Office received that frantic 911 call we just heard. The call is from Bobby Joe Manley. She tells the 911 operator that she had just found the body of her brother-in-law, Chris Roden Sr., 40 years old, and his cousin, Gary Roden, 38 years old, deceased in their home. When she arrived at their place that morning, she stated that she knocked on the door and no one answered. She proceeded to let herself in with a key. She then called 911 after discovering them both in a room covered with a blanket. That is so scary to think of yeah that would be horrifying something that you'd probably never get rid of that no image. it would haunt you for the rest of your life yeah so after the 911 call she ran over to frankie's house an adjacent house on the property looking for help but when she went inside she found that both frankie roden 20 years old and hannah gilly 20 years old were both deceased Frankie's three-year-old son was alive and in the living room, and their six-month-old baby was unharmed, laying in between them in bed. Bobby Joe again called 911, then called her brother James Manley. James immediately went to another Roden family's home, just 1.5 miles up the road, and discovered another horrifying scene. He discovered that his sister, Dana Roden, 37, and her daughter, Hannah Mae Roden, 19, also lay 
deceased in their beds. Hannah May's five-day-old baby was laying next to her in bed, unharmed. Six people, five from the same family, have all been found murdered in their homes. Let's do a quick recap before we add more names to this case. Chris Roden Sr. and Dana Roden are divorced and are the parents of Frankie and Hannah Mae Roden. They live approximately 1.5 miles apart. Hannah Mae lives at home with her mom. Frankie lives on the same property as his dad in a different house. Frankie's fiance is Hannah Gilly. And Gary lives with Chris Sr. and is his cousin. So we are very aware that that is a lot of information, a lot of names, and a lot to take in. Not only with it being a massacre of six people right now. So we'll make sure that we do definitely include a flowchart. Flowchart necessary, <laughs> definitely. please. Bear with us as the story unfolds because there's a lot of people that... A lot of names and a lot of craziness. Yes, this is an absolutely insane story. Now that I probably rattled all your brains with these names and who lives where and with whom, let's keep going. But buckle up, my friends. This is going to be a bumpy ride. Click, click. Buckle. (laughs) (laughs) News of the brutal massacre spread like wildfire in the community. Law enforcement from multiple counties reported to the multiple crime scenes. Worries and fears were high, and no one knew if this was a murder-suicide, if there was still an active shooter in the area, or if the person or persons had left town. As the investigation was taking place, it was soon realized that Chris Roden Jr., 16, son of Dana and Chris Sr., was not accounted for. Chris Jr., better known as Little Chris, was missing, and no one knew where he was. Everyone was instantly worried sick about him, but some feared that this made him an instant suspect. A few hours later, another 911 call comes in, and he had just found his cousin Kenneth Roden, 44, dead from a gunshot wound. Kenneth's home was approximately four miles down the road, Shortly after this call, they also found little Chris, also a victim of multiple gunshot wounds, found dead in his mother's home. There were now eight victims in total, eight members of one family, all massacred in one night. The quiet town is now frightened that the killer is on the loose and also that there could be a killer amongst them in their community. They were left with no clues, no witnesses, and no motives. So with this, I cannot even imagine, for one, what these families are feeling and going through, but the community in itself, like it's like you said, that they don't know. That person could be just lurking around the corner. They could be long gone. Could be your neighbor. Yeah. And the unanswered questions and all of this unfolding in this tiny little town and... I mean, I get anxiety thinking about it. Well, and then to top it off, you got to imagine that that family, the Roden family, is going through some serious stress and... Oh, totally. And... Shock. You've got three survivors, all, you know, under the age of three. Yeah. 
But why the cutoff with the 16-year-old? You know, he's still a child if they're saving the children. So, but I'm sure you'll get into that. Well, let's hope so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Hannah Mae Roden had just given birth four days before she was murdered. Frankie's son was three and Hannah and Frankie's baby was around six months old. What kind of monster can walk past a sleeping toddler and go into two separate rooms in two separate houses and kill the parents with the infant lying in bed with them? That is pure evil. Pure sadistic evil. Demonic. Piketon is a small, tight-knit community with only about 2,100 people. It is located on the western edge of Appalachia, 86 miles from Cincinnati, it's a peaceful town where everybody knows everybody, but yet everyone kind of keeps to themselves. Chris Roden Sr., a true Piketon native, embraced the simple life that his hometown offered. His roots are tracked back to his parents, who migrated from Kentucky to Piketon half a century ago. When his father passed away in 2008, Chris and his siblings inherited a portion of the family's land creating a bond to their ancestral home. While some of his siblings ventured elsewhere, Chris Sr. remained devoted to his hometown. In 1994, he married a local girl, Dana Manley, and they settled down on a piece of land, just a stone's throw away from his childhood home. This reminds me of me growing up. I grew up in a very small town, you know, population was probably pretty close to the same as this and we all of my family bunch of not all of my family but a bunch of my family all lived like within a quarter of a mile of each other it was the best way to grow up as a child yeah you had a lot of places to go visit as a kid well and then you always got to spend time with grandma and grandpa and your aunts and uncles and you know even though my uncles always tortured me and they were like (laughs) big brothers that i never wanted and my aunt and I were close in age and fought, so she was kind of like a big sister as well. Yeah. But yeah, it was like, for me, it was like, I wish my kids would have had something like that, but they don't. <laughs> right. It's tough. It is. So during slower construction periods, Chris Sr. would dabble in buying and selling cars from auctions. Using his resourcefulness to turn a profit, his wife, Dana Manley, was a nurturing nursing assistant who radiated kindness and love she dedicated herself to her family always ready to lend a helping hand known as the mom and dad to everyone chris senior and dana created a warm and welcoming environment for those around them we all had those parents as we are you know teenagers that those favorite parents that you all called mom and dad and You'd always go there and hang out, and you didn't care that they were around. And Yeah, minus the marijuana fields. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> After 13 years of marriage, the couple grew apart and chose to separate. However, for the sake of the family, they stayed living close to each other. Chris Sr. shared his home with his cousin Gary Roden. Chris Sr. helped Gary overcome drug and alcohol issues. Gary was known to be very kind, generous, and a mama's boy. Just down the road from Chris Sr.'s brother, Kenneth Roden, Kenneth was a hard and dedicated worker. 
He left at 4 a.m. every day to commute to his job in Columbus, Ohio. He lived alone with his pit terrier mix, Brownie. Oh, Brownie. Brownie. And 4 a.m., that's way too early to get yeah. up. <laughs> no, thank way you. Too early. He must have really liked his job. I guess so. Chris Sr. and Dana had three children. The oldest was Clarence Frankie Roden, father of Brentley Roden, age three, and Rugger Roden. Ruger. Ruger Roden. Yeah. Six months. Frankie was engaged to Hannah Gilly. He was an avid hunter who loved the outdoors. He loved to be around his friends, but his family was his first priority. He was handsome, and all the girls from town had a crush on him. He was also known to be mischievous. The girls may have loved Frankie, but Frankie's love was cars. Frankie and his brother, little Chris, loved, loved, loved the demolition derby. They loved that a lot. Apparently, there's like three loves in there. (laughs) Uh, Little Chris was a freshman in high school and was small in stature but loud in voice and a little bit on the feisty side. Since the first grade, he always talked about wanting to be in the demo derbies. He loved the idea of smashing into cars and doing it in front of a cheering crowd. Little Chris often wore jeans, his mud boots, and a camo jacket. He had a carefree attitude and didn't care what others thought of him. The demo derby thing, again, brings me back to my childhood. That was such a huge thing at all the county fairs. You would know almost everybody that was participating and their history of winning. And it was like making the cars and painting them. And it was, again, good memories. Sounds exciting. So Hannah Mae was the middle sister of Frankie and little Chris. She was a senior in in high school. She was a spunky, sweet, outgoing girl. She wanted to be a nurse like her mom. Her kids, Sophia Wagner, two years old, and Kylie Roden, five days old, were the light of her life. They were always her first priority. She was an amazing mom. Luckily, the night of the massacres, Sophia was with her dad, Jake Wagner. Jake, who began dating Hannah when she was 13, And got her pregnant two years later. Whoa, 13 years old? They started dating? They started young. That is no, no, no. And she got pregnant at 15. Oh my gosh, this poor girl. Yeah. Jake and Hannah's relationship took a complicated turn. They became parents at a young age. While Jake wanted them to live with his family, Hannah resisted leading to an ongoing disagreement through text messages over the course of two years. Hannah expressed her concerns about alleged domestic violence and made it clear that she didn't want to be with Jake anymore. The couple eventually ended their relationship, triggering a fierce custody battle over their daughter. Hannah admittedly refused to sign custody papers, boldly declaring on Facebook, that they would have to kill her first. Hannah Mae was not the only young mother whose life was cut short on that horrible night. Hannah Gilly's friends described her as a positive, caring person who always put others first. She was a stay-at-home mom, and her life revolved around her six-month-old son, 
Ruger and her fiance Frankie. The police understood the urgency of making an arrest, calmed the fearful residents of Piketon. However, as time passed and hours turned into days, the sense of safety seemed to slip away. Speculations and rumors circulated throughout the town, fueled by the relentless media coverage. Along the rumors was the speculation of a murder-suicide, but the theory was quickly debunked as it became evident that everyone had suffered multiple gunshot wounds. The community was left grappling with uncertainty and a growing sense of unease. The police chief knew he was in over his head, and he needed way more resources. A call was placed to Mike DeWine's office, the attorney general, that came in and took charge of the case. It was extraordinary for them, for the case was fresh, and it was early in the investigation. They also received help from BCI, the Bureau of Criminal Investigations, Ohio's Investigative Division, multiple sheriff's departments, along with the assistance of the FBI. So they had a lot of help. Yeah, they had a lot of uh, different departments going on there. Again, you have this small town that isn't used to having anything of this, you know, multitude. Is that the right? That's not the right word. Magnitude. Magnitude. See, again, there goes my uh, my brain and mouth not communicating right with each other. <laughs> So with all of this help that they had from all these different departments, there was all sorts of allegations and rumors and stuff that were, you know, flowing through town and through the department. And so in the documentary that we watched on, was it Oxygen True Crime? Yeah. They were talking about some of the allegations that could have caused somebody to murder these families. One of the allegations was that of a road rage incident that Chris Sr. had been involved in. (laughs) And they kind of, uh, you know, I think... Better sound effects to come. (laughs) We'll get it. We'll get it. So he was involved in this road rage incident, but they kind of, you know, poo-pooed that because they didn't think that... Somebody getting upset at somebody being cut off would be a reason to massacre an entire family. I don't know. And would they know where the entire family lived? Again, small town, so potentially. 2,100 peeps. Right. Then there was other allegations that little Chris was having some kind of threats against him on Facebook. So you got that social media bullying. But again, would that be a reason to massacre an entire family? Probably not. And I would assume that would probably go the other way if it was the case. Right, right. And then there was rumors about them finding um, cock fighting cages. (laughs) No, Nemo was not found in the making of this documentary. (laughs) And Dory's still swimming, swimming, swimming. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so they also, there was rumors that they found cock cages from like, the cockfight rings and stuff on their property. And there's the thought that maybe it could have been a feud of something that happened at the arena that may have spilt over and led to their deaths. Again, probably not. So those rumors were all pretty laid to rest pretty quickly. And, but then they had thought about the love of the demo derbies and the competition. And there was a tiff that the Roden boys were in 
at one of the derbies, but again, probably not going to cause a somebody to go on unhinged and massacre eight people. Again, you just never know. You don't. Those are some serious dudes. They they are serious. They are very serious. But I think a lot of times they get their aggression out on... By smashing up your car. Yeah. <laughs> I'm coming for you. Boom. Smash. <laughs> but you got a bigger engine. That's no fair. You drove an Imperial and they're outlawed. You got a nice roll cage. That's not fair either. <laughs> So with all of the tips that were called in, unfortunately, I don't think any of them led to any leads. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I didn't mean to like take over there. Continue. Oh, no worries. No worries. So police investigators strongly believe that the brutal massacre could not have been the work of a single individual. The sheer number of victims spread across four different locations suggests the involvement of multiple perpetrators. It is their belief that at least three individuals would be required to carry out such a coordinated attack. And even then, they would need to possess a high level of expertise. Another theory circulating among the community is that the killings may have been orchestrated by a professional hitman, potentially aided by someone familiar with the area. The devastating loss of the Roden family has left the community in a state of grief. But their mourning is overwhelmed or overshadowed by a pervasive sense of fear. In a community where doors were left unlocked without worry, residents now find themselves constantly looking over their shoulders, securing their homes at night. Well, hell yeah. You don't know what, if somebody's going to try busting in. But if you remember... The first place, Chris Sr. and Gary, when the officer, or when the, not the officers, but when Bobby Joe, the sister-in-law, arrived, yeah, their door was locked. Yeah, she had to unlock the door. Their door was locked. That's right. So yep. that means somebody would have had to have a key yep. or known where the key was. Yep. And then after leaving the premises, they locked, locked it, it back up. up. Wow. I did not even uh, put that together yeah. until now. And they don't say anything about the other houses if they were locked or not. No, but, but it did, I'm I'm assuming that most of them were not. Probably because it's yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, that's what they kind of stated from the get go is that it's a know, a tiny know, community. Yeah, you no leave your door. Locked. Yeah. All right. So constantly looking over their shoulders, securing the home at night as a hope for a quick arrest began to fade. All the town knew was that the family had been killed quickly and swiftly, and there were no suspects. Not a one. Not a one. Attorney Mike DeWine makes an announcement. Makes an announcement that they found marijuana. Ooh. Do you know what a marijuana is? Marijuana? Yeah. Is that marijuana? Marijuana, yeah. Mary Jane. Mary, Mary, yeah. I don't know a lot of the slang names. I don't either. <laughs> I was just going to go on a tangent and I just drew a blank. Yeah. Skunkweed. Should have watched more pot movies before. <laughs> going up in smoke. <laughs> so, in three of the four locations where the Roden family was murdered, he claimed that it was clearly a grow operation. Nearly 200 plants were found with a worth of nearly half a million dollars. Whoa. Yeah. 
they were doing some good stuff because, uh, I mean, apparently nobody in town seemed to know anything about this either. <laughs> no, I think this was a pretty um, big, big shock. Yeah, revelation. Yeah. Nothing indicated that this was occurring at their properties. They did not live in $200,000 houses. They drove decent cars. Nothing indicating that they were involved in a huge marijuana operation. After this was announced, it was believed that the cartel may have been involved in the murders. Yeah, every single one of them lived in a trailer home. Yeah. And the one, Kenneth, he lived in a camper on his property. So, yeah, they weren't living a lavish lifestyle to have this kind of money hidden somewhere on your property. Yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah. I guess they knew how to hide it very well. I guess so. As stated in the Occident True Crime documentary, the family was killed execution style, which is up close and point blank. When you get that close to somebody, that tells you that the murder was something personal. You've done something wrong. Now you are going to pay. There was widespread speculation suggesting the possible involvement of Mexico's notorious Sinaloa cartel in the case known for their extreme violence. It seemed like a plausible scenario for them to carry out the murders and escape without leaving any traces, especially considering the increasing legalization of marijuana in certain U.S. states. With the cartel's interest in growing marijuana on American soil, rather than smuggling it across the border, Ohio's status as a drug trafficking corridor and the cartel's established connection in the region made it a topic of discussion among investigators and the public alike. Pike County, Adams County, and Scioto County are known as key trafficking regions due to their strategic locations along US-23, a major transportation route connecting the southern and northern parts of the United States. Over the past decade, the DEA has closely monitored the direct links between the Sinola cartel and Ohio, particularly their involvement in marijuana cultivation operations. Law enforcement agencies have uncovered encampments tied to the cartel located just outside of Pike County, where these illicit activities were taking place. One puzzling aspect of the case is the reason behind the cartel's involvement in such a high-profile incident this far north of the border. Additionally, law enforcement has been troubled by the fact that Chris Sr. and Dana's grandchildren were left unharmed, indicating a sense of morality at play. Speculations arise as the cartel's potential role as they are known for their ruthless methods and typically do not spare anyone, including babies and children. In their operation, the question of why they deviated from their usual approach adds another layer of mystery to the investigation. Yeah, when it comes to those types of groups or whatever, they go in, guns a-blazing, asking no questions, I don't think they even see it. They just kind of blow up the place and they leave. So they're not going to strategically leave these small children alive. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the theory. I don't know. I just, you know, in my mind, I can have a hard time believing that somebody could just walk in and shoot children. Yeah. 
But, you know, I guess that's what they do. But I don't know. It's hard to fathom. Oh, it is very hard to fathom. But, you know, with the cartel and the gangs and the mafia and whoever else, the KGB, they don't want to have any chance of any witness or anything. Those groups, they just... Definitely cold. Yeah. I mean... I can't, I could not fathom. Yeah, I mean, that would be a horrible, I'd, I'd be getting out of the cartel really quick. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't handle killing people, period. So. so the initial cartel theory has been set aside by the police, leaving the townspeople to contemplate the possibility that the answer of the tragic murders lies closer to home. Statistics show that in most cases, victims are killed by somebody they know. These murders were deeply intimate and personal, suggesting that the perpetrators harbored strong anger and a desire to make the Roden family aware of their actions would not be tolerated. The nature of the crimes points towards a personal vendetta against the family, leading to the logical assumption that the perpetrator is somebody familiar to them. I agree with that 150% because you are going to have to know where these people live, who they're related to, who's coming and going. I mean, to plot out a murder of eight people in one evening and to go completely undetected, yeah. you've got to... You've got to know the people. You've got to know the area. Which, you know, in some degree, I'm assuming that the cartel would probably do the research. Too. Oh, I'm sure. But, you know, it is the fact of the dogs that they mention. And would they have left the drugs behind? Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, I guess I don't know, but. I don't know much about the cartels. I don't either. <laughs> I'm pretty cartel stupid. <laughs> so in the aftermath of the murders, the police turned their attention to the rodents family security system. Although the initial review of the footage yielded no significant findings, the presence of the family's watchdogs raised suspicions. These loyal companions would have reacted and alerted rodents if unfamiliar individuals had approached the house. The absence of any aggressive response from the dogs suggests that the perpetrator was, was likely someone familiar to the family, as they did not perceive them as a threat. That was my thought, right there. Right, that's, yeah, it just, uh, if it was the cartel, those dogs had been going nuts. You know? Right, and they avoided all of the video cameras. Yeah. The dogs didn't alert. I thought there was uh, something that, uh, some part of the story where somebody was saying that, like, the electrical was cut or something that oh, maybe. turned off the cameras. I don't know if, maybe I'm just remembering that wrong, but. I don't, we watched so many different things and looked at so many different articles in regards to this. There'll be another part that we'll put a pin in right now, but it's coming up that there was many different speculations of something else that had happened with this too, which we'll cover. I, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay. Sorry, I'll, I'll zip it. And you, you continue. Okay. I'm intrigued. Okay. So Bobby Joe, being the first person to arrive at the scene, immediately called 911. Her presence raised the suspicions and she faced a relentless barrage of questions despite the scrutiny bobby joe avidly maintained her innocence and denied any acknowledgement of the murders the parents of bobby joe james and dana judy and leonard manley shared their frustration over the family member being under investigation 
In an effort to clear her name, Bobby Joe willingly underwent three polygraph tests, successfully passing all of them. The conclusive results provided investigators with confidence that Bobby Joe had no involvement in the tragic murders. Now, these officers realized that these polygraphs don't really work, right? Well, I don't know if they do or not, but I mean, you know, obviously she would have needed help, so who would have helped her? You know. Right. But I mean, they cleared her, which I'm glad they did because she wasn't involved. But OK, she took a polygraph test. She was she's not lying. Let's let her, you know, yeah, move but, on to the next suspect. They made her do it three times. <laughs> wow. Right. So the conclusive results provided investigators with confidence that Bobby Joe had no involvement in the tragic murders. Investigators guided by statistics revealing that 50% of murders involve someone within the family considered the possibility that the perpetrator could be Bobby Joe or another family member. This line of inquiry was driven by the unsettling reality that those closest to us can sometimes betray our trust. And that's very true because a lot of times they they first look at the husband or the wife or you know, the boyfriend or the girlfriend, the immediate family members. So, yeah, I mean, right. I can see that that is usually. It's, it's always the husband. It's always the it's husband. It's always the husband. And it's never a mannequin. When you see something in the ditch or the water, it's never a mannequin. <laughs> Unless you're watching Ghost Adventures. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just remembered that episode that you're watching with the mannequin and it scared out. Uh, oh, my God. That freaked g- out, uh, Aaron. <laughs> he came flying out of that room I mean, he did what i would do except for i would have like not touched any of the stairs my feet would have just went like flew over the tops of the stairs and out the damn door yeah, i would have done it too <laughs> i would have scooped there would have been a tracy sized hole in the side of the wall <laughs> so with the regards to the investigation both bobby joe and her brother james were under the watchful eyes of investigators James, who had arrived at the scene, fell under suspicion. Law enforcement closely monitored his activities, even resorted to placing a tracker on his truck. However, a few days later, while working on his vehicle, James stumbled upon the tracker and promptly removed it. Shortly after the incident, investigators eliminated James as a suspect in the case, clearing his name from the list of potential suspects. Months of dedicated police work turned into a year of relentless pursuit. Despite their unwavering efforts, no viable suspects emerged, and every lead seemed to reach a dead end. False hopes dashed. The community of Python faced a grim reality. With each passing theory, a haunted nightmare loomed over them. What if the truth behind the massacre, the identity of the one who took eight lives, remained forever elusive? It was a question that struck fear deep into the hearts of the Piketon residents, leaving them grappling with the unsettling possibility of never finding the answers they desperately sought. Police at the time were keeping all the information close to the chest. They did not share any new information with the public or the news. The attorney general was still confident and again reassured that we will get them. The slow progress of the investigation weighs heavily on the extended Roden family, Dana's grief-stricken parents, Leonard and Judy Manley. 
Like other family members, Leonard felt a deep frustration as they yearned for justice and the apprehension of those responsible for the heinous crimes. Without answers, the family and the community were left without closure, impeding their ability to heal and move forward. Well, yeah, I mean, they should have frustration. They're coming, you know, after their family. So again, odds, you know, 50% of the time, it's someone that you know or is close to you or whatever. But I just, I couldn't imagine that hollowness of not knowing. Yeah. It would eat me up. Well, and then the fear of knowing that those people that murdered somebody so effortlessly right, are still, are out, still there. out there. And yeah. you still have family members left. Yeah. And, you know, oh. You don't know if they're targets. Or, I mean, that is just the thought of tomorrow. I mean, murder and mayhem and all that is horrible. But Or, you know, losing a family member to a car accident. Any kind of death is horrible. But could you imagine waking up tomorrow and eight of your close family members are all gone? Well, yeah. And can you even resolve those feelings if you're still in fear of this could still happen right. some more? Or, right. You know, you're so, in, I mean, these poor people, I hope somebody got them some medication because if anybody deserves it, they do. Or go fire up that marijuana. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would have to believe that a lot of them probably didn't kind of resolve their issues well, until no. after uh, right. they, they found the people. They recently released autopsy reports, provided some detail about the tragic incident. Although certain information was redacted, the reports revealed that each victim had sustained multiple gunshot wounds in various locations. Chris Sr. had the highest number of gunshot wounds, indicating that he may have been the initial target of the attack, and the others were subsequently targeted. Additionally, Signs of physical assault were observed on Chris Sr., suggesting a more violent confrontation. He was shot nine times and was believed to be the main target. That's some major aggression there. Oh, yeah. Major aggression. On May 12, 2017, a significant development unfolded as law enforcement took decisive action armed with search warrants, Dozens of state and local agents conducted simultaneous searches on three properties belonging to the influential and affluent Wagner family, a prominent name in the region. The Wagners held a special status in Piketon, similar to royalty. Their wealth and generosity made them highly regarded in the community. Unlike many others who faced financial hardships, the Wagners remained resilient and prosperous. At the heart of the family was 76-year-old Frederica, the esteemed matriarch, with ownership of over 17,000 acres of valuable land worth more than $4 million. Frederica's prized possession was the sprawling 300-acre horse ranch known as the Flying V. Their Flying val- W. The Flying W, yeah. Their house or their land value must well, be not yeah, like these, it is. These values would have been probably from 2017 too, probably, huh? I would assume so. From, because that... 
that that much acreage, I would assume, is probably worth even more than that. Yeah, 17,000 acres, I would think, would be worth way. I mean, I would think that her $300 acre horse ranch, the Flying W alone, would be, probably be worth $4 million. Never seen it. I'm not sure. But when you... Yeah, it, I suppose if it looks like some of their trailers, I don't know. <laughs> well, this, is the, uh, this is the Wagner family, though. Oh, yeah. And they're royalty. They're wealthy. Yeah. And but when you said that, that kind of I was like that caused a pause for me because that's a lot of acres. That's a lot of acres. Oh my god. So devoted to her faith, Frederica was a pillar of the local church and known for her generous assistance to families in need. She was a pillar of the community. Pillar of the community. Her warm nature endeared her children who adored her with numerous rental properties under her name many tenants were also members of her church every sunday and thursday she opened her doors to host dinners for children who often went without sufficient food due to their low income circumstances so she was one of those that ever the kids all adored she was you know very very into the church and i mean it seems like she tried to always do good yeah generally but, a good person right and she liked her marijuana no that was the the other family <laughs> was that the other family i don't know i need a freaking flow chart we do need a flow chart dude where's the flow chart no the rodents were the ones the ones that were killed well and, maybe the wagner's got some well i'm sure they've got seventeen thousand acres i'm sure they got pot growing somewhere yeah probably just out in the fields out there so Frederica's son, George Billy Wagner III, better known as Billy, was recognized for his straightforward nature and strong work ethic, assuring that his family's well-being, Angela Wagner, his dedicated wife, was always there for their children, offering unwavering support together. Port. Together, Billy and Angela had two kids, George Wagner IV and Edward Jake Wagner, known better as Jake. There were rumors of a connection between Billy and Chris Sr., suggesting some business dealings between them, but nothing substantial or incriminating. The more significant tie lies between their children, Jake Wagner and Hannah Mae Roden, were in a serious relationship and shared a child together. Sophia, who was nearly three years old when the tragic events occurred, although they eventually separated, the presence of his connection and the shady business dealings arise suspicion. However, despite the searches, no arrests were made in relation to the circumstances. Law enforcement was laser-focused on the Wagner family. However, they were not considered suspects or persons of interest at that time. So that statement confuses me, and I remember hearing it in the documentary. They're laser-focused on them, but they don't consider them suspects or persons of interest. Is that to try to make them feel like they're they're safe so they're hoping they they mess up somehow maybe it was just a quiet thing you know maybe they were looking into him but they didn't want to drop any like hints at him okay that's the only thing i can think but um shortly after the anniversary of the murders the wagner family made a significant decision to relocate to alaska which raised concern among many community members the move drew attention to the wagners sought to downplay in a local news publication 
They claimed that the decision had been made prior to the searches. As part of their plans, Billy and Angela sold their 41-acre farm and embarked on a journey of over 4,000 miles to settle in Kenya, Alaska. Approximately a year later, the Wagner family made the decision to return to Piketon. Perhaps they believed that enough time had passed and it was safe to come back. However, their return coincided with an intensification of the investigation. After two years of searching for answers, the community's prayers were finally answered and a new development unfolded. The heat was turned up and the pursuit of justice gained momentum. Simultaneously, law enforcement takes decisive action by executing multiple arrest warrants. Billy Wagner, Angela Wagner, George Jr., and Jake Wagner were all apprehended, sending shockwaves through the community. However, while the arrest brings a sense of closure to some, others are left perplexed by the involvement of the Wagner family. The town finds itself divided, with some firmly believing their guilt, while others struggle to reconcile their image with such heinous crimes. The pursuit of truth continues amidst a community grappling with conflicting opinions. The murders were well thought out, well planned, and well executed. They plotted, stalked, and documented every move this family made for a long time. It is said that they allegedly used lawnmower parts to create silencers, the oil filters specifically. They tried using maglite flashlights, but they did not work. They also allegedly went to Walmart and bought specific shoes that they used during the murders to prevent DNA transfer. They also purchased gun ammunition, gun magazines, phone jammers, and a brass catcher. The brass catcher is a device that you attach to a firearm to catch the shell casings. So I never realized that you could make a homemade silencer Silencer. and the ingenuity of this family of, you know, trying these different things. And that's what I was talking about earlier. There was speculation that they used the mag lights. There was speculation that they used other things as the silencer. But in uh, Jake's testimony in court, he said that it was the oil filter from the lawnmowers that finally worked. Right. Yeah. And I've, I've heard that before in like movies and stuff where people created them out of that. That's just crazy. And then I'd never heard of brass catchers before I've, either. I've heard of that. but And why don't we have these? So when we go to the range, we don't have to bend over and pick up all of our <laughs> casings. <laughs> I, I think the odd thing that I didn't catch until now is the notion of phone jammers. Yes. The I fo- mean, you can just pick those up at Walmart. Come I don't on. know where they got it, but it was pretty smart on their part because then nobody well, could call yeah. for help. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, that's scary. It's smart, scary smart, scary smart, and to know that there's something out there like that that if somebody's going to go and do something heinous, they can have one of those to jam the signals of all the phones and within a certain distance. Hello, we need to figure out a way to counteract those things. Yeah. So two more people were brought into custody, and the initial four were arrested: Frederica Wagner, Billy's mother, and Rita Newcomb. Angela's mother, Frederica allegedly allegedly lied to the grand jury and Rita allegedly forged custody documents for Sophia between Hannah May and Jake. 
These documents were created three weeks prior to the massacre. All right, people, I think we're officially done adding any more characters into this. Are you sure? I, I thought there was like 20 more. No. I can't be <laughs> certain, but I'm pretty sure we're coming to the end of adding people. <laughs> and we will. We will have the flow chart. And I think that's probably why it took the cops so long and why they took the focus off of the Wagners for a little bit. Because, dude, they had to create a flow chart <laughs> yeah and i don't know if they took their focus off they just didn't no, have any i'm being a smart ass now <laughs> they didn't have an, enough information no they certainly know. didn't but in 2015 hannah may made the difficult decision to end a relationship with jake wagner leading to her being granted full custody of sophia the wagner family however fought against the decision seeking to overturn the custody arrangement and obtain full custody themselves. During this time, Hannah May briefly dated Charlie Gilly and became pregnant with his child. Tragically, just five days after giving birth, Hannah May is brutally murdered. Investigators suspect that the motive behind the massacre was not solely directed at Hannah May, but rather aimed at eliminating any potential challenges to Jake's custody rights and preventing any further custody disputes. By eliminating everybody involved, they sought to ensure that there would be no retaliation and that Jake would retain custody of Sophia without contest. Six days after the massacre, Jake filed for full custody of Sophia, and it was granted in 2016. But with Jake now being arrested, Sophia's custody is in limbo. Her mother was killed, and her dad's in jail. Her maternal grandparents were killed, and her parental grandparents were also arrested. Two uncles were killed, and the others in jail as well. The child potentially does not have anybody right now. Sophia's current location is a secret for her protection and the protection of the people who are caring for her. So I just looked up. I was curious. I was going to look this up earlier and I forgot. So Charlie Gilly was the father of Hannah May's five-day-old baby. And Hannah Gilly, who was Frankie's fiance. Yeah. I wanted to see if they were related. Are they? Yes. Charlie is Hannah Gilly's brother so again that loops those that gilly family in even more to this whole yeah again small town yeah yeah and the one thing with our previous episode with the uh murdoch case again you know it was a while that i wrote that story and then after reading it i remembered that all the different smiths in that case oh yeah you know, you got Stephen Smith, the young kid, and then you have Edward Smith, which is um, Alex's drug dealer. Okay. And then you have, I think it's Gloria Smith. Was it, I was going to say, was the housekeeper's last yeah, name Smith? Yeah, the housekeeper, or not the housekeeper for, it's uh, the caretaker for Oh, that's right, his for mom. his mom, yes. Yeah, her name is also Smith, but definitely none of those three Smiths are related. Related. We need a flowchart yeah. for that episode, too. Almost do, yeah. Yeah. 
The Wagners all waived their rights to a speedy trial. In June of 2019, all charges were dismissed against Frederica Wagner. April 22, 2021, now 28-year-old Jake Wagner pleaded guilty to 23 charges related to the Roden family massacre. Jake is expected to testify against his mother, father, and brother during their trials. Angela Wagner pled guilty in 2012 and was sentenced to 30 years for her involvement. In December of 2022, George Wagner Jr. was sentenced to life without parole. He was charged with 22 charges, 8 charges of aggravated murder, and 14 related burglary charges. As March 1st, 2023, Billy Wagner has still not had his trial. So I also wanted to read the testimonies of Tabitha Clater, George Jr.'s ex-wife, and Elizabeth Armour. Wait, is she on the flow chart? Oh, no. I lied. There's two more people that we're adding to the flow ah, chart. Busted. <laughs> I lied. <laughs> Sorry, peoples. So there's two more people. There's Tabitha Clater. She was George Jr.'s ex-wife. And Elizabeth Armour is Jake Wagner's ex-wife. So we're going to start off with Tabitha. Uh, the ex-wife of George Wagner IV took the stand Monday to describe her life living with the family, including that of her former mother-in-law, how she dictated their sex life and accused her of stealing and abusing her son. So the mother-in-law is dictating their sex life. That doesn't sound like anything that I would ever put up with. <laughs> no. If you're married, your sex life is personal, bitch. Get your nose out of it. <laughs> well, you know, and I think, what was she, like 13 or something? She was, let's, uh, we're going to get to that. So we'll get to that here in a second. But the one thing that I do want to go back to before we go forward with this is Angela. If you look at her mugshot, and we'll have these pictures out in the blog as well, she is smirking. Yeah, she smirks through the whole court case, I think. Yeah, she just, I think she has that holier than thou. I am not going to be, you know, I think she finds it funny. I wonder if she's still smiling now probably not she's been convicted now granted she got the lesser of all of the sentences she only got 30 years yeah, but that's probably. pretty much a life sentence for her yeah and i know they pled she pled so that they wouldn't get the death penalty but this woman just tries to control all aspects of the lives of these other poor women that are getting involved with these sadistic sons so anyway we'll get back to this here tabitha she's also known as tabby when she first dated George, she was 12 years old. And I believe he was 16, if I remember correctly. So she was probably 15. It might 15, 16, somewhere in there. And but yeah, so she was like a sixth grader when she first dated him. She dated him for approximately a year. They broke up, but then rekindled their relationship when she was 18. So actually, she's legal now. But she uh, rekindled the relationship with him after Hannah Mae had contacted her on Facebook and asked her to date George again. Hannah Mae was dating Wagner's younger brother, Jake Wagner, at the time. 
time. He pleaded guilty last year and admitted that he and his family murdered the eight members of the Roden and Gilly families so that they could have sole custody of his daughter that he shared with Hannah Mae, Sophia. His mother, Angela Wagner, has also pled guilty to her role in the conspiracy and agreed to testify against George and his father, Billy Wagner. So all the families turning on each other. They're all testifying against each other, trying to get out of this. So Tabby kind of gives us a little glimpse of what life was like in the Wagner home. Tabby testifies that she and George Jr. married in 2012 and she had their son, wait for it, Bullvine. Who names their child after a, I mean, to me, that is a total cattle name. <laughs> Sorry, it may be a popular name near the Appalachia, but in Minnesota, bovine would be probably a bull's name or something. Yeah, you just see a cow. Yeah. So they had their son bovine eight months after they got married in uh, 2013. At the time, Tabby said that she lived with George, Jake, and their parents, Billy and Angela Wagner, at the home on Bethel Hill Road, near the sprawling Flying W horse farm owned by Billy Wagner's parents, Bob Wagner and Frederica Wagner. Tabby said that she met the Wagners because her mother worked for Frederica at a group home that she had owned. Tabby recalled that her mother and her sister were only permitted to visit her at that home once. So again, Angela controlling her life. Tabby said that they didn't like her family. Tabby also recalled discussions Angela Wagner had with her and George at the kitchen table and in their bedroom in which Angela Wagner was quoted telling them, you wasn't allowed to give blowjobs or you'd go to hell. You wasn't? You wasn't. Oh, boy. So first off, why are you talking about sex with these grown-ass adults? And why are you putting stipulations on that? And she also said that sex was for the purpose of having children only. Sorry, no. And why does royalty talk like trailer trash? Right? (laughs) I mean, you should not have any control over their life, period. They're adults. Pretty weird. But again... Again, they were very, very young, and I think you know that's how. Uh, well, at this time, she Angela was, got away with it. Yeah. Well, this time they were nineteen. She was nineteen, and George had to have been in his twenties. But I guess if you're living under mom's yeah, roof, then wow. Hell to the no. So then Tabby also said that when she gave birth to Bullvine, (laughs) George and Angela were at the hospital with her and Angela actually spent the night. Tabby said that she wanted her mother to spend the night with her at the hospital, but her mother didn't even get to meet her son until he was a year and a half old. So after their son was born, Tabby said she wanted him to sleep with her in his crib next to her bed. But Angela said, no, no, no. The boy's going to sleep with her and Billy. No, no, no. I mean, what the hell, woman? Angela's house, Angela's Angela's rules. rules. And all I have to say is, Angela, you are one crazy thunder cunt of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) 
Tabby said when she was asked about who made the decisions in the home, she said George went along with his mother's decisions. So whatever mama wants, mama gets, mama gets. She also described an isolated incident at the Bethel Hill Road property where she said the Wagners planned to burn the house down and collect a $250,000 insurance policy. She recalled helping the family move furniture, photos and other belongings out of the house so they wouldn't be destroyed by the fire and Angela was buying uh, Mama's like a bag of mixed nuts you never know what you're gonna get (laughs) (laughs) definitely so Angela also bought a receipt book that they filled out to submit to the insurance company so Earlier, you had discussed something in regards to how this family always survived any economic recessions and stuff. They just burned down a house. Yeah, collect the insurance money. Problem solved. Jesus. I, Angela, burnt down house on six. (laughs) Well, they did say they were pillars of the community. And you know what they say about pillars? They always turn to killers. (laughs) I've never heard that before. No? No. The pillars are the killers. The pillars are the killers. Tabby also told the jurors that she and Angela Wagner went out one day to buy decorations to celebrate Bullvine's first month. (laughs) And upon returning from the store, I wonder if they got any moo juice. (laughs) (laughs) She quoted Angela Wagner saying... utterly ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, come on. Oh, that was good. (laughs) She recalled Angela saying, quote, Oh, I hope that's not ours after seeing a trail of smoke. Tabby said the Wagners started the fire using an overflowing pan of grease and a propane stove. Is Angela's laughing? (laughs) Here comes the money. Thunder God. (laughs) <laughs> Tabby also said the Wagners used the money to buy another home on Peterson Road. Of course where, they did. Of course. They wanted to upgrade. Uh, she lived there with the Wagners and Hannah Mae Roden. The witness said, or the witness being Tabby, said that she and Hannah Mae didn't get along very well because they were always competing for Angela's approval. Why? I have no idea. Why would anybody want that woman's approval? No. Tabby is scheduled to return to the stand Tuesday morning. She's expected to testify on how she escaped from the Wagner home in fear for her life and was forced to sign over custody of her son to George Jr., Her testimony is important to the state because the prosecutors say the custody of Jake Wagner and Hannah Mae Roden's daughter was the motive for the 2016 murders. So Waverly, Ohio, WKRC says the ex-wife of George Wagner IV testified Tuesday about fleeing the Wagner household two years into their marriage after a fight erupted between her and George and his mother, Angela Wagner. It was the second day of testimony for Tabby Clater, who married Wagner in 2012, and he was on trial for murder for his alleged role in the April 2016 killings of the eight members of the Roden and Gilly families. So kind of just recaps a little bit of what we talked about at the beginning in the first testimony. Mm-hmm. 
And so Tabby tells the court about how after she had bovine, (laughs) she was soon on lockdown at the house with little access to outside and her phone was taken away. Then in November 2014, she testified that things exploded. Mama took my phone away. She took everything away from them. Mama, bitch. I believe she actually also like asked for all of their passwords and bank information well, and, and all of that. You know, stuff. that's the other thing. I mean, I think a normal person would have told her to go to hell. This girl might have not have been mature enough, right, to confront this lady, and you know that's how this all took place. Right, I'd have kicked her in her balls. Oh, definitely, kicked her in her big hairy balls <laughs> and her thunder cunt. <laughs> The night she ran away, Tabby said that the fight began because she didn't clean up the kitchen as instructed because she was trying to get her son to take a nap. That led to a shouting match with Angela and then George jumped in. He came in and he started smacking me with a belt, she testified she Tuesday. She should have forked mama. <laughs> Tabby later said that it started as horseplay during cross-examination, but then she said it got more serious later in the testimony. How does hitting anyone with a belt start as horseplay? I mean, this isn't in their bedroom, (laughs) so it's not a kink thing. This is in the kitchen in front of his mom. I think uh, George had to protect mama. Yes, which again, ugh. She said George eventually slapped her in the face and blocked her from leaving the house. At that point, I love this. This is a quote from her. I bit him and tried to rip his nuts off. Yeah, girl. (laughs) Get it. Rip that ball sack off. Get out any way you can. Kick it, bite it, pull it, rip it. Just get out. (laughs) She said that the fight moved outside the home that evening, and as she was able to get past George, she said that George told her to stop screaming or he would slap her. She said she screamed louder, and then that George hit her. And then he followed by saying, you just signed your divorce. You just signed your divorce papers, boy. Yes, sorry. Tabby said that. You just signed your divorce papers, not George. And I told him that I was not going to go back inside and I was running. So Angela then threw a board at her and told George that she was going to go inside and get a gun. The board that was thrown was a two by four piece of wood. Whatever size, that's going to hurt. Yeah. At that point, uh, Tabby said that she ran into the woods and later hid under a truck while the family searched for her with flashlights. After dark, Tabby rode a bicycle to a nearby gas station, got her mother to pick her up, but she said that George and his younger brother, Jake Wagner, intercepted her, telling her to come home. I mean, hell no, you're out, leave. Yeah. When she arrived at the gas station, she called her mother using the cashier's cell phone, but the Wagners were also there with the police. They had filed a domestic disturbance complaint against her, accusing her of dragging her son across the floor. You manipulative pieces of shit. Mm-hmm. I hate you. 
<laughs> On cross-examination, the defense got Tabby to say a reason for her lockdown was because she was unfaithful to George and she couldn't remain faithful. She also testified she didn't ever know that she pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge of disorderly conduct, even though the defense lawyer Nash produced a document indicating that she paid a $214 fine. This poor woman has just been brainwashed by this family. I mean, she admits because she couldn't be faithful, that's why she had to be locked down. No, that's what they tell her. I mean, she... And then she probably didn't know about this fine. The family probably paid it to make it go away. Probably. Tabby then says that George gave her money for the fine, but that she didn't know she was pleading guilty to anything. Hannah May, one of the victims of the shooting, also lived at the Wagner's home at the time as she was dating Jake and had a daughter with him. Prosecutors allege that the daughter, Sophia, is at the center of the dispute that led to the 2016 shootings. Tabby said that Hannah May was there the night when Tabby ran away and present later with the rest of the family at the gas station. Tuesday afternoon, prosecutors went over several Facebook messages between the two women after Hannah and May had moved out of the Wagner home. The two women wrote about their time at the Wagners and their struggles to get custody of their children. So now we're going to move on to Jake's ex-wife. And Jake had met this girl when they were living in Alaska. She was a very... She, well, her family was Mennonites. Do you, you know what a Mennonite is? Yeah. So basically, it's kind of like a... Um, kind of Amish, but Amish, but restrictions. Yeah, they have power and they drive vehicles, and but they still have a lot of the same beliefs. No sex before marriage and, you know, very religious. So the ex-wife of Jake Wagner testified to being terrified of the Wagner family and was looking to get away from them after Jake made dire threats against her and her family. The dramatic testimony came at the end of week six of testimonies in the murder trial of Jake's older brother, George Wagner IV. For his alleged part in the April 2016 killings of eight members of the Roden and Gilly families, Elizabeth Armour met the Wagners in 2017 at church in Alaska shortly after the family moved there. That led to a whirlwind, woo, I have a hard time with that, whirlwind romance with Jake Wagner and they married in March 2018, shortly before the Wagners moved back to Ohio. I hadn't, this is a quote by Elizabeth, I hadn't dated anybody and didn't have any experience with men, so I had requested in no uncertain terms that we were not to consummate our marriage on that night, which Jake had agreed to but did not honor, said Armour. Armour said almost immediately after she and Jake consummated their marriage against her wishes, Jake asked her for all of her personal information. He wanted her bank account access numbers, her social security number, her phone passcode, and everything else they could think to get from her. She said Jake had also synced her phone with his so he could see what she was doing at all times, made her cut off contact with her family, and Angela Wagner made her sign a contract saying in the event of a divorce, she wouldn't try to get custody of Jake's daughter, Sophia, whom he had with the murder victim, Hannah Mae Roden. So again, wackadoodle. I mean, this girl doesn't have any legal rights to this child to begin with. I mean, she's not adopting her, so 
I mean, this Angela is so afraid of losing this child that, I mean, she's already doctored the custody paperwork, which her mother was charged with. And now she's having her sign, you know, a contract saying she's not going to go after Sophia. I don't understand why she didn't leave the second that uh, he asked he, for her bank account access. Or, or when he raped her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't All know. All of the above. All of the above. This family just, I don't know, they have this ability to brainwash and get people under their thumbs. Well, it's because they're all young. Yes. They young and naive. They yeah. go for the naive ones. Somebody who grows up in that Mennonite or Amish community, they don't know what the real world's like. They, ha- they have a beautiful world where they are. The real world is an evil place. So at the time, Jake Wagner didn't denied to the Armour family that he was involved in the Pike County Massacre. The then-mother Angela accused Armour Elizabeth of sexually assaulting Jake's daughter Sophia. Elizabeth testified Jake took her side but issued this warning that if it were indeed true. He laid it out to me very clearly that if I had done it, the right thing to do would be to create Lucille, the baseball bat from the television show The Walking Dead, and string me up in the barn and beat me to death with that baseball bat. Bulldoze the barn, burn it down, hunt down and kill my family. And that if he didn't do it, his mom would do it. If his mom didn't do it, his brother George would do it. Or Billy. I mean, first off, I don't know if any of you watched The Walking Dead, but I've watched it all the way through twice and the second time I had to skip the episode where Lucille comes into play because that was horrific. Yeah, They went way too gory with it and I still have nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) Just, I mean, Oh, the special effects the, were too the much. eyes popping. Yes, out. yes. The too much, too much. I'm getting the chills, the goosebumps just talking about it. But I'm sorry. Again, Ron Girl. So he just said that any of them would be willing to do it because it would be the right thing to do. And it wouldn't be the first time. No, sadistic bastards. Elizabeth also testified that Jake threatened to kill her family if they ever tried to attempt to visit her in Ohio. Those threats led Elizabeth starting her plans to escape. She told the story of how she left. She changed her clothes in a Walmart bathroom and slid out a back door where her father awaited for her in a rental car. So this poor girl, you know, changes her clothes to not be able to be quickly identified by them, sneaks out a back door, and her father's so worried that he gets a rental car to come and save her. The things that that family just fucks with people. Mm-hmm. So the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation had agents there, and they also followed her once she got away with her father. Once she determined she was safe, they discontinued following her. She and her father took back roads to make sure they weren't followed, and then they changed cars later, and then she went to Virginia to live with a friend. Elizabeth said that she believed the Wagners and even people in Alaska who said that the family didn't have anything to do with the murders. But then she testified that the family was incredibly controlling and constantly worried about the state investigation. Elizabeth even said George and Jake would plot against law enforcement lead BCI agent Schreider and then Attorney General Mike DeWine. 
They also plotted how they would escape prison if anyone were ever convicted. They were loudly discussing creating some kind of electric weapon that they would use to harm Mark DeWine and various other law enforcement people they were annoyed by, Armour said. There was discussion about creating a bulletproof bulldozer, which could be driven through the walls of the enclosure, such as a prison in which to break people out of jail. Boy, these people just don't stop. <laughs> a bulletproof bulldozer, an electrical weapon. Wowzers. MacGyvers. So with Elizabeth's testimony, this was the closest the prosecution had gotten to tying George to what the rest of the family was doing. During the pretrial hearings, the prosecution detailed how they helped protect Elizabeth, even helping her by changing her social security number. So basically now this woman is living in protective custody. I mean, they changed her social security number and everything. She denied to be interviewed by defense lawyers before the trial, telling the defense lawyer, John Parker, I'm terrified of the Wagners. So that is the end of their testimonies. And we've got one that still hasn't been charged yet. And this happened in 2016. Yeah. And we're at 2023. Well, I mean, I know part of it was due to COVID. Right. Yeah. And they waived their rights to a speedy trial. And I know they had to do each trial one by one, you know. Right. But wow, this story was quite the roller coaster. Crazy. Flow chart to follow. Yeah, you need a flow chart. You need a very good flow chart <laughs> yes. to follow. Once you put those faces to the names, it, it makes a lot of sense. But we tried to kind of give each person, you know, a description and bring their personality into play with it and to help it resonate and I wanted to make sure that we you know touch base on all the victims because most of the time this story is mostly told about the Wagner side of it but I wanted the Rodin and Gilly side you know we wanted the Rodin and Gilly side to really be reflected in the story and but that's all we have for you today, folks. It's going to be just a one-story episode. Yeah, it was a long it was one. It's a long one. So we need to wrap her up. All right. Well, until next time, we love you. Love you. Goodbye. Smell you later. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for hanging out with us here at Total Conundrum. Please make sure to check out our website and blog at totalconundrum.com. For news, upcoming events, merch, bloopers, and additional hysteria, you never know what will pop up, so be sure to follow along. If you want to show your support for Total Conundrum and gain access to all of our bonus content, please visit our Patreon page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The links are available in our show notes. If you have any questions, comments, recommendations, or stories to share, please email us at contact at totalconundrum.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the love. Keep on creeping on, mother cluckers.